So this is how we're going to go. So um, introductions, talk briefly about brain-machine interfaces. Um, and then the kind of scope of the talk is to see to what extent um, brain-machine <coughs> interfaces, when we think of them, conform to kind of what may be called traditional theories of action within philosophy. Um, and whether they do or not, may be a good or a bad thing. So we'll talk about causal theory of action, what's called the problem of causal deviance, non-causal theory, and then this, we'll have this disjunctive theory at the end of it. So the kind of key questions that I'm interested in, and um, I certainly don't think I've got close to answering them, is firstly, what is an action? again understood broadly within a philosophical framework. And then secondly, the bit that really interests me is this question, under what conditions does brain-machine interface-enabled behaviour qualify, qualify as action? So um, this is kind of generated by thinking about brain-machine interfaces. There are a variety of different types of interfaces, a variety of different types of neurological device that can aid behaviour. I mean, the most typical one is cochlear implants. Um, but perhaps the most extraordinary, remarkable stuff, and if you're not familiar, Google brain-machine interfaces and um, see the remarkable technology that we've now developed. And one of the most extraordinary developments is how these devices can help for those who have suffered spinal cord injury particularly those who have become quadriplegic or tetraplegic. So the most vivid image for me when I think about this is under Christopher Reeve, who as Superman had this image of being Superman, of being this extraordinarily superhuman with strength and nobility, and due to an extraordinarily tragic accident, was quadriplegic. And I remember seeing an interview I think it was the Leno show in the States when he said confidently that he expected within his lifetime that he would be able to walk again. And sadly, that wasn't the case. But we have made extraordinary progress in this regard. So spinal cord injury is um, you know, considerable numbers of people who suffer it, who are rendered quadriplegic or para paraplegic. Most of the injuries a lot of the injuries, 33% motor vehicle accidents and other accidents like that. Um, and so, what does a brain-machine interface do? So I'm particularly interested in what we call motor interfaces. So they work like this. So if you somebody like Christopher Reeve, exactly this case, the injury that caused his paraplegia leaves the kind of cognitive functions intact. I mean, what makes it perhaps so vividly disturbing? So his thoughts, his movement intentions in that sense remain same as yours and mine. So a brain-machine interface is this conceptual, this extraordinary and now practical thing. If we could just connect these intact mental process, cognitive processes, to a device, we could re-innovate movement. 
So the BMI works this way, it decodes neural signals um, to extract voluntary movement to commands that reflect intention. So somebody with a brain-machine interface, if they say she wants to move her arm, she's able to do this because the device decodes certain movement parameters, like the goal that she's reaching for, um, the direction, the torque, the force. So those elements we can decode. So um, in March of last year, there's a story that was in the garden and then picked up elsewhere, this remarkable by guy, Bill Kochevar, and this is the headline from The Guardian. It says, Paralyzed Man moves on using power of thought in world first. So what's unique in this is that um, Mr. Koshevar was able to use, it wasn't a prosthetic limb, it was his own body, that with a brain machine interface and what's called functional elect electronic stimulation, was able to move his own body that had become paralyzed after um, a bike accident. And the extraordinary part, the world first part, is that he was able to move his arm, again, that was paralyzed by technology, and he was now able, as the Guardian says, to um, drink and feed himself, something that he'd been unable to do ahead of time. So again, it's not a kind of a stand brain machine interface, and this is his own arm, not a robotic arm. But if you're like me, that technology is quite extraordinary. <coughs> so as the Guardian said, the, 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 the text from the Guardian, so he was paralyzed from below the neck after crushing his bike, had electrical implants implanted in, in the motor cortex, which is the standard area of the brain for motor <coughs> brain machine interfaces. Then he has sensors inserted in his forearm which allow the muscles and hand to be stimulated in response to signals from his brain. So, after eight years, he can do these remarkable things. So, when you look at that, when we think about that, and the kind of what the thought that got me going is somebody could say, well, look, that's, he's just like us. He's just like us in the sense that if you adopt a kind of physical view, we are physical systems. The brain connects to the body. When I move my arm, it's really just the same as Bill Koshevar moving his arm. It's a different type of technology, but it's essentially the same type of thing. <coughs> so if you think about the concept of action, you think about the concept of agent, in making these movements, Bill Koshevar is acting in the same way that I'm acting if I raise my arm. He's an agent, he's somebody who's interacting with the world. So if you imagine that kind of image, and then imagine completely differently, let's say that you use the remote to turn off on the projector. It would be interesting but odd to say that the projector is part of me even though I can control it. We tend not to think that with Bel Kochevo. We don't, once we see him move, we don't think of the, the, his own body re-innovated 
like the projector as something different. No. It's now integrated enough to think that he's performing actions with that thing. So somebody could say, look, there's really nothing. This is just a technological question. So just my, I mean, my favorite one is, you know, the Empire Strikes Back, when Luke Skywalker gets a new arm there, and they plug him in, and then just like this. So you might, you know, you could say, look, it's, there's no philosophical problem here, that having a new body is just like having an old body. Bill Koshevar's actions are examples of intentional action. He wants to feed himself. He can, wants to move the cup to his mouth. That desire moves the cup to his mouth. It's just the same as anybody in this room. More clearly, it seems that he's obviously doing something. And again, you, one might look at the, if you have again, you can put the video on, online, you can say that he's obviously doing something. He's guiding and controlling his body in a way that reflects his intentions. So, to think about this, so, Ronald, you know, who retired a couple weeks ago. So here's an example of thought and action. Most exquisite football. And then contrast or compare that with this. So this is a guy, so he's wearing, a, sorry, the picture's not very good, an exoskeleton. So this is before the last Brazilian World Cup. And an individual, again, who suffered spinal cord injury with the use of implants is able to walk using this exoskeleton. So, again, also not again, the question is, should we think of this as action? On what grounds is it action? You might even be interested to ask whether we think of this as the body and why or why not? So, briefly to talk about brain-machine interfaces. So, this is very, very brief. Um, so, you, they can be categorized in the following ways. So, they're broadly speaking either invasive or uninvasive. Non-invasive. Non-invasive devices are EEG devices that rest on top of the skull. Um, other devices, intracortical microstimulation devices, are um, inserted into the brain. Um, they detect different types of signals. They can detect um, the firing of individual neurons or sound electro electrical activity across a variety of neurons. So the, you get greater accuracy, great if you go further into the brain, then obviously you pay the price of being invasive. And then, um, what I think is, I hope, interesting to you as well as to me, this distinction between direct and indirect devices. So direct devices, in a way, in principle, like Bill Koshevar, the neural events that are detected or used are those that are intrinsically related to intended movement. So in, in simple speak, the movement of my arm is enabled by my intention to move my arm. So however you want to cash that out. So when, you, when I move my arm, if you're a physicalist, you're going to say, 
that's caused by the neural state of wanting to move my arm. And again, if you're a physicalist, you want to say that, look, broadly speaking, to fudge on that, actions are causally related to specific types of <coughs> neural events. So this is what we mean by an intrinsic relationship. In contrast, there are movements that have no intrinsic relationship. So, for example, you could learn, in principle, I think, you could learn to start a car by controlling your heart rate. So there, and, and again, in principle, you could learn to walk by changing your heart rate. If we had some device that connected regularly with heart rate, you could do that. But there's no, it's what we call, we're simply co-opting a neural event in that case. So the information, again, as far as I know, in, in broad terms, this is the information that um, brain machine faces can generally detect. Position, direction of force, and reach. So when I move my arm as I understand it, the brain-machine interface can detect that information. It can detect goals, where I want to go. You know, in a sense, of if the movement is over there, it can detect the movement, it can detect what we call these movement parameters. So if I have it, if I build Koshibar, a desire for a drink of water, it's in one sense, not detecting the desire per se, it's detecting the movements that are going to enable that. Um, BMI, I mean, standardly they involve, they include visual feedback. So when we're training both humans and non-human primates, training for this, or historically, involves visual feedback. So training consists of two things. The individual either imagines moving it. So one way that we can train the system is when I imagine moving my arm, the device records the neural activity for that imaginary movement. Because, maybe no surprise, the imaginary movement neural process is very similar to what actually occurs if you move your arm. So, there's that, and there's also in terms of um, yes, training, and then, then performing the movement itself. So in, in trials, somebody like Bill Kochevar is moving his arm, the system is recording the information, and then over trials, making the detection and the signal more accurate. Finally, present brain machine interfaces tend are standardly efferent and not afferent. That is to say, we've made substantial progress in, in enabling body movement, but we've made less pro progress in providing sensory feedback. So in Bill Kochevar's case, he can move the arm, but he's not receiving any tactile feedback. So, using these distinctions, here's this distinction again between brain-machine interfaces that I direct 
and brain-machine interfaces that have indirect signals. So in the indirect ones, which um, we'll talk about, um, so you can cause movement by the suppression of cortical rhythms, controlling cortical rhythms, detection of amplitude differences. So let's say that you want to spell out a word using a computer, and you want to spell out the word cat. Well, given that you want C's, there will be a difference in the neural signal whether the cursor is on C as opposed to it's on another one. So given that difference, we can map that difference and use it to control. And then a movement-related cortical potential. So if I recall, so every when you move or intend to move, there's a signal that um, occurs uh, standardly just before the intended movement, which again can be used to control the device. Okay, so what we have so far is maybe something about brain machine interfaces, something about spinal cord injury. So what we're going to do now is this first kind of theory, causal theory of action, which is a theory about kind of standard philosophical theory about what it means to act. So, Wittgenstein um, famously said, what is left over if I subtract the fact that my arm goes up from the fact that I raise my arm? Kind of jolly thing to say. <laughs> and one, what is called in the literature the standard view, the orthodox view perhaps, the causal theory of action. So we start with the notion of bodily movement. That's our basic, our top level category. And then bodily movements are distinguished into two parts, or two types that are either actions or mere happening. So actions are, are identified, are defined as bodily movements that are causally related to the person's beliefs and desires. In contrast, mere happenings are bodily movements with a different etiology. So, standardly, CTA, the causal theory of action, Joan wants another sip of coffee, she reaches out her hand to pick up her cup. That's an action because the bodily movement is caused by beliefs and desires, or to gloss by intention. It's a mere happening if it's not an autonomous action. If it's a reflex, or perhaps bizarrely, somebody moves her arm. So according to the causal theory, a necessary and sufficient condition of physical action, bodily movement is causally related to the person's beliefs and desires. So here's a, here's a case, and this is maybe rightly or wrongly what got me to think about this. And the case is from Aguilar and Bukharak. So Chiro has had a device planted in his brain that allows a neuroscientist to detect whenever a Chiro has acquired an action triggering intention to perform an overt action. Unknown to him, two things are true. His motor areas and efferent pathways are unresponsive to his proximal intentions. Second, the neuroscientist, upon detecting the presence of the intention, stimulates his motor areas and efferent pathways, thereby causing movement. So this case is typical for what's called the problem of causal leaving. 
And the problem is this, that CTA says that actions are bodily movements caused by intentions. Here in the case of a bodily movement that's at least in part caused by his intentions, but there's something gritty about this. I mean, if you, I mean, you might think there's nothing gritty, and that's fine, or but you, alternatively, you might think, wait a minute, he's not, Ichiro isn't really acting here. So you can dress this up how you want. So maybe the bodily movement includes, because I've been watching the crowd, includes flipping off the queen. So somebody might say, oh, why did Ichiro do that? And somebody might say, it wasn't Ichiro who did that. So surely the presence of the, the nefarious neuroscientist takes some of that responsibility away. So if that's your intuition on that case, then we can finesse the case to have this one. So not Ichiro, but Isabel has had a device planted in her brain that detects whenever she has acquired an action trigger intention to perform an overt action. Isabel is aware, unlike Ichiro, but she's aware <coughs> her motor areas, effort pathways are unresponsive to her proximal intentions. This device causes her movement. So, at first glance, if your intuitions in the first case were that we don't have a bona fide cause of action or maybe something slightly gritty, we should have a slightly gritty reaction to this. <coughs> I mean, it's just an in principle theoretical case. There's nothing empirical about it, but it seems that the, something here is enough to make us think, well, maybe she's not in control. But this is just very broadly put what a BMI does. Um, so, one way the causal theorists can respond to this in the literature, these are the kind of standard responses. So, just to say she, for the causal theorist, she can adopt what's called a sensitivity condition, which is a kind of counterfactual condition such that if Isabel had had different intentions, her movement would have been different. So causation in this sense is, to a degree, contingent upon how sensitive the device or the system, understood broadly, is to counterfactual conditions. Secondly, what seems to be important in both cases is the presence of a causal intermediary. Thirdly, what Christopher Peacock calls differential explanation, which Aguirre, the quote is from, says, regularities in the world with certain properties functionally fix the properties of our rights. So if we have regular, what we might call world-based properties, that would lead us more to think that we have a case of bona fide causation. And finally, it's a basic action, defined as something that you don't have to do something else to do. So using the remote to turn off the TV is not a basic action, because in order to do that, I have to do something else. Moving or raising your arm is a basic action. 
you don't have to learn or do anything to do that. So how would this apply to indirect de devices? Well, briefly, it seems that these questions or reasons that you might have for being worried about causal deviance would apply in indirect cases. So it's, the way I, I suppose I understand this is to think of it as a, a spectrum, such that if you, again, if indirect bright devices co-opt events, the less reliable or the more co-opted will have an impact on reliability, sensitivity, and differential explanation. So if we're co-opting co something that is only really bears no relationship to the person's intentions or the behavior, that will suggest that it's likely to be perhaps not particularly reliable. Again, a reliable <coughs> system, you'd want it so that if I want chalk, not cheese, I'm going to get short, not cheap. But you know, if my movements are very, very limited and don't respond, then they're not particularly reliable. Secondly, you want a system that's sensitive defined here. If I had different desires, beliefs, or intentions, the system would do that. Well, given the specificity of indirect devices that are EEG-based, it may be less likely that that's going to occur. So they, again, it's, it's not a, a knockdown argument by any means. But it, it seems that if you think what is an action, one of the reasons, one of the ways you might think it's not an action are these, these factors would come into play. The greater the BMI plays a role as a causal intermediary, the less we're likely to think it's an action. What is the time? Uh, it's six. six. How much longer? Uh, well, typically people would go for 45 or 50 minutes, so 15 or 20 minutes. Okay, I'll see you at 8 then. <laughs> so with direct devices, the matter is, is, is perhaps clearer because, again, with what is causing the movement is the neural state that is known to correlate. So it's not the case that, let's say, uh, broad electrical signals are being used to control my arm, but the, the direct BMI is detecting the neural processes that we know underlie arm movement. How do we know that? Well, because there are clever neuroscientists who have helped detect that. So again, on a physicalist, naturalistic perspective, we have detected we can say, this is what occurs in the brain when you move your arm, like that, broad enough. So you might say, well, look, the problem of co-opting and reliability shouldn't be there, because direct devices use the real signal that correlates. So, but one concern we might have here is that, again, as I mentioned before, what exactly is being detected? So, like me, you might think there's a difference between the, these two things. So, a system that when I want to move my arm detects the movement parameters. 
and a system that, when I want to move my arm, detects my intention to move. Now, it seems one could plausibly say that causal theory of actions tend to want intentional content. <coughs> what they want to say is that Joan's bodily movement was caused by her intention to move. Now, again, if you're a physicalist, presumably there is a neural correlate that, brought, that type identifies with psychological types. So that's what we would be looking for, not correlates that correlate with movement parameters. And so somebody might object and say, which I think is a very good objection, wait a minute, Tom, how is this different from normally? Because when I move my arms, it's not as though the intentional content is used by the signals that move my <coughs> But it seems that there is still that intentional content that's playing some causal role. Um, so this, this, this last part, so in the literature, a ballistic cause is a cause that just brings an event about. And so one might say, look, brain-machine interfaces, direct, indirect, or both, are really ballistic causes. Because what's doing the causal work is not the kind of intentional psychological states that play such a role in causal theory. Okay, so just quickly, um, let's not do that one. So let's move on to this. this. So that's the first account, causal theory of action. So here's a second account, a non-causal account. So, um, um, Harry Frankfurt has a lovely article on this which I'm referring to here. Um, so the non-causal account says that look, causation is irrelevant. It's irrelevant when you say what is an action. It's got nothing to do with what caused body movement. And using Frankfurt, Frankfurt's kind of main claim is that look, we're interested not what happened a moment ago. We're not interested in the state of your brain before. I mean, if you accept that causes necessarily <coughs> precede effects, then a causal account is always an historical account. It's telling you what caused bodily movement, not what bodily movement itself consisted. So Frankfurt says, look, what matters is what's going on during the time the person is performing. <coughs> if I'm interested in the concept of action, I want to know what's going on when you're acting, not what happened before, whether before is a nanosecond or four hours. Rather, action seems to be a matter of guidance and control. The difference between mere happenings and actions are what the system is doing currently to guide and control. As Frankfurt says, look, lots of systems or subsystems 
are guided in control, like, for example, the donation of the pupil. But we don't think of that in action. So what differentiates dilation of the pupils from action robustly? For Frankfurt, it's the degree to which the agent identifies with the causal mechanism. So as he puts it succinctly, our sense of our own agency when we act is nothing more than the way it feels to us when we are somehow in touch with the operation of the mechanisms of the kind by which our movements are guided and their course guaranteed. So what does it mean to be aware of your actions? It's just that you have this sense of guidance and control. So, obviously, if I can anticipate where this is going to go, how would this apply to brain-machine interfaces? So NCA is a non-causal account. So um, Sean Gallagher, a lovely book called How Bodies um, Controls the Mind, I think it is, um, has a chapter where he talks about the missing body schema. So the body schema is um, this generally the always unconscious representation we have of the kind of um, spatial orientation of our bodies. So it's, it's um, uh, Gallagher distinguishes between a, between a body image, which tends to be a conscious thing of how you see yourself, and the body schema, which is somatosensory or proprioceptive, which is this unconscious sense of your body in space. And this seems to be an integral part of action. In order to move my arm, I must have some sense, some physical spatial orientation. If not, I'd fall over or couldn't, couldn't move my arm because I need some spatial reference to do so. And Gallagher talks about this famous case in Wharton, IW. And um, IW suffered this acute sensory neuropathy, and he lost all soma somatosensation from the neck down. So he couldn't feel anything. If you touched his knee, the only way he'd know you were touching his knee is because he could see it. He could see you do that. Um, so, so IW loses this, but remarkably enough, he learned to control his bodily movements through conscious control. So if you imagine that's what that like, imagine you're walking and you have to concentrate on positioning your body and on moving your legs. But he was adept at this, so that he, I think he's still alive, has a regular job, lives a life as near as normal, to the ones that you or I do, but he lacks that proprioception. So again, in this case, um, you know, one might say, well, look, IW has these, these differences, this radical lack of bodily awareness, this lack of somatosensation, but he's managed to accommodate this by learning 
the movements have become reliable, they're alienated in the sense of his connection with his body, but you could say, well, look, but although he lacks the body schema, he meets Frankfurt's notion because he's in touch with body movement. I mean, it's not like you or I. He's not in touch with his body in the same way that I am. I know the positions of my arms. But one, <coughs> one can be generous here and not simply rule out on principle that he fails to meet Frankfurt's condition. But this is very, very different in the case of the BMI case. So in this type of case, you get proprioceptive information. So there's a very, very interesting literature about individuals with neuroprosthetic limbs, perhaps not as severe as, our, as um, Bill Koshevar, but they're still receiving proprioceptive information. Information about where the body is, but not conscious awareness of what the body is. There's also evidence of neural plasticity. The brain learns to rewire itself to accommodate a neural prosthetic. And you have visual feedback. But here, the level of control is so much worse than in the IW case. So if your intuition's in IWI, yes, look, we have got action because we've got conscious control movement to a sophisticated degree. We lack that in this case. Okay, so where are we so far? So thinking about action, the causal theory seems to have this problem of causal deviance which perhaps sweeps up brain-machine interfaces in its objection. A non-causal theory that emphasizes um, a current movement and this notion, Frankfurt's notion of being in touch, again would seem perhaps to exclude the case. So the last part is just um, he briefly suggested another option. So the disjunctive theory of action goes back to the beginning. The beginning is the way that we pass action between, sorry, the way we pass bodily movements between actions and their happenings. So the disjunctivist, on her account, you start with the concept of action. And actions are essential bodily movements. So in thinking about this, and I don't know if this is helpful, if we think about the notion of gender, and you could say, somebody could pass the world this way, they could say, look, in order to understand or explain the, the difference between men and women, we have to appeal to the concept of gender. And you might say, that doesn't help me at all. I mean, what is this gender that's not male or female? And not in a social political sense, but as a conceptual thing. Surely, to understand the notion of gender is to understand the difference between male and female. We don't make any explanatory move by looking at this broader notion. So, on this notion, 
Actions and mere happenings are essentially different things. They're not subclasses of a more primary concept called bodily movement. So as it says here, actions are bodily movements minus intentions. So if you were odd enough to frame it this way, the notion of bodily movement is the exquisite notion where you've abstracted something essential from it. And support for this disjunctive view is, that, is that this notion that standardly when we're interested in action, I mean, again, this is perhaps anecdotal, that we rarely in our lives want to know whether somebody's acted or it was a reflex. In the sense that we intuitively identify action. We don't intuitively identify bodily movements and then say, gosh, was it an action or a reflex? No. We intuitively see actions. The world is framed for certainly human action, maybe more broadly, it's framed in terms of action. So the question is not, was this an action? But we know it was an action. We're interested in why something. So, the initial reaction, if you're like me, when you see pictures of El Kojabar, when you look at, on um, YouTube, videos of individuals using brain-machine interfaces in your prosthetics, intuitively, we don't, we don't doubt that the individual, in this case, Bill, is doing something. Again, it would be odd if you thought, what's he doing? Is that a reflex? That's weird. No intuitively recognize that as action. And we do so because of context, how we frame certain movements within this kind of broader environment, and secondly, because of the complexity. I mean, these are the factors that identify something as an action. I mean, what, again, we can say, why is it that it's clear to us that he's acting? Um, and Gala has this phrase, reinventing movement. So, if you think of the cases we talked about, so Gallagher talks about Ian Waterman. And in a way, Waterman has reinvented movement. He's moving in a radically different way through conscious control. So, if you think that movement relies upon somatic sensation, then this is a radical departure. Secondly, Bill Koshevar is, you might say, he's acting, he's controlling bodily movement, although, as one of the quotes, he's got no idea how it happens. He may, as others in the room have written, he may feel alienated from his bodily movements because he doesn't know what's going on, but in a way, you might say he doesn't have to. That pragmatically, he can do these things. Um, so we get you know, this destructive theory of thinking about action as this essential intentional element. It gives us a notion of agency that may be different from the ones that we 
had before, where it's not necessary that somebody who is acting should feel commensurate or aware of her human body in the way that we do. So maybe, you know, maybe the next generation of brain-machine interfaces don't feel anything like human bodily movements. But maybe they don't have to in order for action to occur. So in terms of adaptation, one of the kind of things talked about um, in, in terms of brain-machine interfaces is in one sense, why should we attempt to replicate what we have right now? <coughs> I mean, somebody could say, look, if we could just design a system that works like the human body, that'd be great. Why? Maybe we can design a system where phenomenologically it's completely different. Where somebody can manipulate his body that feels perhaps even radically different from the way that you or I do, that has a very, very different causal history or um, commensurate feeling, but maybe that's just what technology is. And then lastly, um, this notion of promiscuous embodiment from Andy Clark. Um, so, again, to think that in order to think about human action or physical action, intentional physical action, this may be something that can be done in a variety of different ways. So a standard view is that action involves bodily movements, but in order to make progress, we don't want to define action in terms of whether what you're moving is a body, because what defining what counts as a body often intermixes with what counts as an action. So there may, we can imagine cases where it's an open question whether what you're moving is your physical body. So if you think about very novel technologies or, or coupled systems or kind of cyborgs, we might not be able to answer the question whether this is part of the body or part of the world but it doesn't follow that that won't, pre or that prevents us from answering the question whether the person is active. Thank you very much.